You may be seated. As I told you last night, we're going to continue this evening what we started last night and we'll continue tomorrow night and Wednesday night. But in order to do that, we need to review very quickly what we've done. And so let me just take about the first three, four minutes here and review what we did last night. If you remember, we established the fact we're looking at 2 Peter chapter 1. If you want to be turning there, you'll be all set to go. 2 Peter chapter 1. And we started looking at verse number 5 where it says, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. That and beside this took you back to verses 1 through 4 of 2 Peter chapter 1, which tells you that if you're saved here tonight, you are gifted. And we're not even talking about heaven. You are gifted. You've got grace. You've got peace. You've got a new nature. You've got knowledge. You've got a, a life and godliness, those first, verses, first four verses say. So you are very gifted. And so because of that, you have verse 5, which says, and beside this, because of this, giving all diligence. And remember what that word diligence meant? It meant to have enthusiasm for. God it wants you in control of your attitude, sir, of your attitude, ma'am. And every one of you that know the Lord ought to have an attitude right now. God, speak to my heart. I want this. I'm all about this. I'm a fan of your word. That's what that word diligence means. So giving all diligence, add to your faith. And remember last night we made a men's quartet, and I told you that I was going to be the choir leader, the choir director, the choreographer of that quartet, and, and I was a picture of you. And what Peter's about to do, people, is he's about to give you what I call seven melodies. I call them melodies because of the word add there in verse 5, which is the same word that we get our word choir or choreograph from. And so we are commanded, all of us, every one of you are some kind of director, and you're commanded, some kind of conductor, and you're, demand, you're commanded by the word of God to add these seven melodies to your life. So let's read the passage. Could we please, so you, you're very familiar with it, Second Peter chapter 1, and let me start reading in verse number 5 if I could. The Bible says, and beside this, Referring to first, the first four verses. And beside this, giving all diligence, add, which means to chorus together, add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance. And to temperance, patience. And to patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity or love. Now, friends, what I would like you to understand is there are seven melodies that we just read. You are commanded to add these to your faith. Folks, this is always the direction the Bible will take you. These seven melodies are incredibly large and huge. And your pastor could easily preach a month on every one of them. We're just going to scratch the surface. But I want all of you to know that it's God's command that you add to your life. Nobody can do it for you. It is your job. Not even God does it for you. It's your job to conduct to your life these seven melodies. And these seven melodies, if you'll remember, are sequential, which means it all starts with melody number one, which happens to be virtue. But what I would like to do tonight is I'd like to take the first half of this message, and I want to start reading it, verse 8. And a large portion of Scripture, Peter's going to dedicate people to just the significance and the importance in your life of these seven melodies. And before I start reading in verse number 8, May I just share with you something kind of personal? Many years ago, I went to a great Christian college, and, and I, uh, I uh, graduated before going to that college from a public high school in Seattle. 
In order to satisfy my English requirement in high school, my senior year, because I had a three-point grade average thanks to PE and band, I qualified for a special course called TV and Film Analysis. And to satisfy my senior credit, all I had to do with 14 other seniors is sit around a room in a circle and watch old black and white movies that starred Humphrey Bogart and other guys, and then we would discuss the theme of that movie and how it related to the present economy that that movie was made. My wasn't I ready for college. And I went off to a college that has always prided itself in having a high standard of English. Well, I had to take so much English because of my major, I decided to make English my minor. Now, I tried not to let books get in the way of my education, but I was able to graduate. I, I, I crammed four years of college into five. And um, when I got to the end of my fifth year, I realized I needed one more English course to satisfy my graduation requirements. As is my mode of operation, I waited until the last minute. I went into the records office to sign up, and of course, everything was full except for one course. And when I tell you the title of this one course, you'll understand why it was still open. The title of the course was Old, I don't like it already, Old English Novel. Who cares? Old English novel. But that was the only thing open. And folks, I kind of I I arrested my attitude because I was right on the fence in my degree point average. I was right on the fence of getting into grad school. And I wanted to get into grad school. I, I kind of wasted the first three years, you know, playing ball and trumpet and just having a great time. And then I kind of got serious about it the second half of college. And so I was kind of right on the fence. And so I needed to do well. The pressure was on. So I signed up for the course. I made up my mind. I'm going to, I don't care what the material is. I'm going to be on it like a mosquito, you know. Anyway, so I, I went in there and I, I sat in the front row because it's proven that people who sit up front get better grades than people who sit in the back, Baptists. And so I was, um, I, was I, I sat up front and, and the teacher came up and it didn't take me long to realize this was not going to be all that bad. You had to read a lot of reading. You had to read these great masterpieces by Dickens and other great authors. And I thoroughly enjoyed the course and pulled a great grade. But the reason I'm telling you this is because there was a word in those classics that kept appearing over and over again that you don't hear anymore. And folks, that word had to do with a dynamic that went like this. For a young man in England in the 1700s, 1600s to dream about being a sailor, it's like a young man today in America dreaming about being a jet fighter pilot or an astronaut. It was the cutting edge of all vocations, all occupations. Often, boys would run away from home to get on these sailing vessels. These sailing vessels had a crew, always had a crew, made up of teenagers. The captain was usually in his early 20s. It was a very young crew, and the lifestyle was incredibly rugged. And what they would do with these sailing vessels is they would load the holes with fruits and vegetables and assaulted pork and barrels of water and no refrigeration. The voyages lasted anywhere from two to four years. So within a month, especially if they were sailing towards the equator like most of them did, because of the no refrigeration, what had not been eaten had to be thrown overboard because it was rancid. And for the rest of their voyage, these teenagers ate nothing but stale water, fish that they caught from the ocean, a gross cracker called hardtack, and salted pork. These teenagers, most of which would be around 14, 15 years old, developed symptoms that they called back then scurvy. Have you ever heard that term before, scurvy people? It was a big, big problem. 
And what, would, what the symptoms were, and every vessel had this going on, what the symptoms were is these teenagers would develop these symptoms that looked like this. Their fingernails would fall out. Their toenails would fall out. Their teeth would fall out. Their hair would fall out. No, I don't have scurvy. Relax. <laughs> and just about every single voyage had death. That's why to this day, if you go on a cruise and you're in international waters, your captain has the authority to marry and bury at sea because every voyage had death. It was a huge problem, and we're talking teenagers. So cutting-edge science, such as it was back then, began to study what in the world is this scurvy, what's causing it, and after years of research, they were able to discover that scurvy was a symptom caused by the lack of vitamin C in your diet that you get from fruits and vegetables. So cutting-edge technology, such as it was, began to research and study how can we preserve fruits and vegetables, and a method that many of you are familiar with called canning, where you boil the contents and put them in airtight jars, was invented. And they loaded the hulls of these ships with these canned goods, these jarred goods, and scurvy slowly disappeared. To this day, people, an English sailor is referred to as a limey, because in the 1800s, it became English law, the world dominant power on the, on the sea, became English law that every English soldier was to either be given a lemon or a lime a day to combat scurvy. Now, people, the reason I took all that time to share that with you is because as I have the privilege, as I have the wonderful privilege of going to church to church all over this land, I see in the church a lot of scurvy. There is no fruit God's people aren't doing anything. We've gotten so comfortable with knowing that I'm going to heaven and it's all about me and, and to extend myself and to reach out and have ministry in other people's lives that is so foreign more and more to the local Christian. We've got a lot of scurvy, even probably in this church. A lot of you, are, you're very content with knowing that you're saved and there's nothing wrong with that, but you're doing nothing to bear fruit. And with that in mind, I want you to see what Peter says in verse 8. And 9, 10, 11, and 12, 13, 14, and 15, okay? So put your seatbelts on. Now, let me start reading. And may I just offer a suggestion? You don't have to do this. This is just a suggestion. But perhaps you could grab a pen or a pencil. And I would challenge you, maybe later for your devotions, to circle every time Peter uses the term, these things. These things. He's going to do it a lot, folks. And what I want you to know is every time Peter uses that term, these things, it is always referring to the seven melodies. All right, are you with me? Let's watch this, okay? Verse number eight. Peter says, For if these things be in you, what are these things? Or you have your first occurrence, the seven melodies. So for if these seven melodies are in you and abound, would you look at me? It is God's will, folks, for you not to have just a little bit of virtue, but to overflow it. Not a little bit of knowledge, but to overflow it. Not a little bit of temperance, not a little bit of patience, not a little bit of godliness, but to overflow these things. You overflow them. You're not happy. You're not satisfied with where you're at. You want more. It's a constant growing process. And I repeat, it's always the direction the Bible takes you. So Peter says, for if these things be in you and abound... They make you, folks, it's a natural chain reaction. They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor scurvy-like, unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's camp here for a moment. They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful. So let's understand something right up front. It's a given. 
Is it possible for a Christian to be barren and unfruitful? The answer, yes. This is a passage to Christians. It is very possible that I'm looking at a whole lot of saints who win your life when it comes to bearing fruit. You are barren and unfruitful. That should bother you. Let me drive it home even more. That word barren is used elsewhere in the New Testament, Christians, to describe somebody unsaved. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that you're unsaved. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying, it's possible for you and me to get to a point in our Christianity where we're no more good for God than somebody unsaved. I've seen a lot of Christians like that, haven't you? No more. In fact, you can't even tell the difference between them and somebody unsaved. And what you need to understand is that that is sick. That's unfruitful. That's scurvy. That's disease to Christianity. Remember what John 15 said? Jesus himself said, I am the vine, ye are the branch. What do branches do? They bear fruit. If they don't bear fruit, they get cut off, Jesus said, and burned. They're only good for fire. We have been, folks, we've been created, we've been saved to bear fruit. The reason you're still on the earth is not so you can have a marriage, although that's a nice perk. I sure love my wife. Not to have children, oh, that's a nice perk. I love mine. It's not to have a job, although I'm glad to have a job. It's not to, to fellowship in the church, although that's wonderful. Folks, you'll do all of that better in heaven. The only reason that God still has you here and has saved you is so that you can bear fruit for him. Now, that fruit can be seen in your family. That fruit should be seen in your job. That fruit should be seen in your neighborhood. But the reason you're still here, saint, is so that you can bear fruit. That's the reason Jesus Christ saved you, so you could bear fruit. And you want that if you're saved. But understand that these seven melodies, they will make you. In other words, you have to have them if you're going to bear fruit. So are you starting to get the idea that these are kind of significant? If you are, good job. You're awake. Now watch this, verse number 9. Okay, watch verse 9. Peter says, But he that lacketh these things, uh-oh, so it's possible to lack them, but he that lacketh these things is blind, that word blind there means ignorant, and cannot see afar off, they're nearsighted, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. You know what that verse is saying? If you don't have these seven melodies in your life, you're kind of unstable. You're going to doubt your salvation. You're going to be kind of depressed. You're going to be defeated. Your salvation isn't going to work right because you're not feeding it. You're not giving it the fruit that it demands. So it's possible that I'm looking at Christians. You always need counsel. You always need help. Your, your life is kind of like this. You're depressed. You're happy. You're depressed. You're happy. You're unstable. A double-minded man is always unstable in all his ways. So, friends, understand what Peter's just told you. If these things are in you and abound, you're not going to be unstable. You're going to enjoy the fruits of salvation. You're going to love your Lord. Things are going to be healthy. You're going to be stable. You're going to be mature. And you want that, friend. If you're a real Christian, you want that in your life. Could I get an amen? Now, watch this. Verse 10. Verse 10, he says, Wherefore the rather, brethren... 
Give, and there's that word again, go Seahawks, enthusiasm. Remember that illustration last night? Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence, Peter likes that word, to make your calling and election sure or steadfast or solid, your salvation. For if ye do, here it is a third time, these things ye shall never fall. So you, you see the stability? These seven melodies, folks, they're going to make you a better Christian. They're God's will for your life. And not just a little bit of virtue, you overflow it. Not a little bit of knowledge, you overflow it. Now watch this, let's go on, verse 12. This verse, verse 12, is really, really interesting. I have never heard a pastor preach verse 12, never have. But watch this, would you? This is really fascinating. Kind of, kind of, anyway, look what, look, look what it says. No, excuse me, verse 11, verse 11, verse 11. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you, saint, you, Christian, abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. Where's the everlasting kingdom? Heaven. So you're going to be ministered into heaven. You're ushered into heaven of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly. Now, Jesus himself taught. There were levels of hell. Somebody who's never heard the gospel is not going to suffer as much as somebody who has heard the gospel and rejected it. The Bible seems to indicate that some of us are going to enjoy heaven a little more than others. That's what verse 11 is kind of introducing you to. That the more fruit you bear here on earth, the better your entrance into heaven will be. I kind of liken it to a cruise ship. Have you ever been on a cruise? I went on a cruise many years ago to celebrate my in-law's uh, 60th wedding anniversary. And we went from Seattle to Alaska and back and, and through the intercoastal waterway. They're just beautiful. But, but it was kind of interesting on that cruise ship, they have levels of decks. And the more you pay, the higher you are on that ship. And the, the, the deck, the, the, the top deck, you know, they've got these very opulent rooms that you can, and that's not where we were. And, but, but the lower you get in the ship, the more basic it kind of becomes basic economy. You know what I mean? Well, folks, I, I think that heaven is going to be kind of like that. Is everybody on the cruise ship glad they're there? Oh, yeah, they're loving it. They're loving the scenery. They're loving you know, you're eating. Yeah, 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 it's wonderful. But can I just suggest that people on the top deck are probably enjoying it a little more than the people on the bottom deck that are getting wet? Yeah. The Bible seems to indicate that heaven's like that. And the more fruit, the more good we are for God, the more the entrance that's going to be ministered unto you into heaven. Fascinating. Now, folks, watch this. Verse 12. Verse 12. We're making good time. Hang with me. Verse 12. Now, what's going to happen in verse 12 through verse 14 and 15, is Peter's going to get very personal, and he's going to use the pronoun I. So he's going to kind of share with you his heart. Now, folks, watch this. Would you? This is so fascinating. I love this. Verse 12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent. In other words, this is important to me, to put you always in remembrance of what? These things. Though ye know them and have been established or taught in the present truth. Would you look at me for a moment? What Peter is saying is, folks, when you get together, remind each other of what you already know. You've heard, I'm not going to preach anything this week that you haven't heard a pastor preach to you. Now, I do it a little different style perhaps than they do, but we're hearing nothing new that you don't know. Nothing new probably that most of you have not read before. 
But the purpose of the church, the purpose when we get together is to remind each other of what we already know. And Peter is saying, when you guys get together, please keep preaching this over and over and over again. Teachers, it's not for you to come up with something new. It's not for a pastor to come up with something new. It's that you're to teach and to preach over and over again these things, these things, over and over again. Now watch this, verse number, verse number 13. What I do with my Bible? Oh, Heather, you stole it on me. Verse, verse 13. Yea, I think it meet or righteous, as long as I'm in this body, this tabernacle, to stir you up. Wow. To stir you up. How, Peter, how? By putting you in remembrance. Remembrance of what, people? These things. Did you catch that? If you're right with God, and you come to church, and the pastor's up there preaching the, the, what applies to these seven melodies, and by the way, folks, every message you've ever heard in a good Bible-believing church comes under one or several of these seven melodies. These seven melodies summarize the entire Christian experience. In the masterful stroke that only the Holy Spirit can do. In these seven melodies, you've got the entire Christian dynamic, the entire Christian Bible, the entire belief system that sends us to heaven is all summarized by these seven melodies. And so Peter says, when you get together, remind my people of what they already know. And if they're right with God, it's going to stir their hearts. When's the last time, lady? When's the last time, sir? You walked out of a service going, yeah, yeah, let's, let's do this. I'm glad I'm on the Lord's side. Oh, pastor, thank you. My heart is stirred. Let me at him. Let me at him. Are you aware of the fact that God would like that to happen every time you hear preaching? Peter says, stir them up. Well, how, Peter? By reminding them of what they already know. And what is he reminding you of? These seven melodies. They are so crucially important, people. And you know what's kind of interesting about that? You can get stirred, people. You can get excited about anything you want to. I'll never forget years ago when I was a youth pastor in Connecticut. It was the custom of this church that when somebody wanted to become a member, they would walk the aisle and they would, you know, during one of the services and they would tell the pastor, I want to become a member. And later on that week or later on that day, perhaps in the evening service, before the evening service, we would have a meeting where that, 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 that candidate would share their testimony of how they came to know the Lord and, and, and share it with the deacons and the pastoral staff. We had about six deacons and two pastors, the senior pastor and me, the youth pastor. One morning, a third grade girl came forward. I knew her well. knew her mother, single mom. And that third grade girl came forward. She wanted to become a member of the church. She'd been baptized, and she wanted to be a member of the church. And so uh, that evening, she came into the deacon board and gave her testimony. Of course, her mother had helped to coach her a little bit. But Janelle came in, and there we were, six deacons and two pastoral staff. So eight men, eight burly, ugly men sitting around a conference table, and in walks a little third grade girl. And in 30 seconds, she shared the fact that she knew she was a sinner, that she had asked Jesus Christ to forgive her her sins and to rescue her and let her have eternal life. By the time she was done with that simple little testimony, there wasn't a dry eye around the table. And you know why? Because we were just reminded. We were just reminded. Stir them up by putting them in remembrance. 
we were just reminded that how sweet salvation is that even a third grade girl can get saved and yet the greatest theologians like your pastor are still debating some of the finite stuff and all the minutia that's involved in salvation like for instance predestination <laughs> salvation is so good folks we were stirred we were stirred do you let the Lord stir you When's the last time you were stirred, huh? Now watch this, watch this. Now, this, this, really, this really gets interesting. Heather, would you stop it? Okay. All right, verse number, where am I? Verse, okay, now watch this. Oh, folks, this is so interesting. Watch this. Verse 14. Knowing, Peter says, knowing that surely I must put off, I'm going to die a martyr's death. I'm going to put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Wait a minute, Peter, wait a minute. When did Christ show you you were going to die? Oh, Bible students, do you remember? Do you remember? Oh, decades before. Do you remember Jesus is still on the earth? He's died. He's resurrected. He's on the earth ministering. He shows up at the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples were out there fishing. They were professional fishermen. They were really good at it. And they had fished all night on a lake that just teems with fish and caught nothing. Dawn is approaching. They're out there toiling. And all of a sudden, a voice comes from the shore. Children, do you have any fish? I would imagine that the answer probably went back something like this. No. <laughs> and the voice said, try the other side of the boat. Well, folks, that's kind of hard. That, those nets are heavy. It would take a good half hour or so to get them all out of the water and then to replant them in the other side of the boat. But they did it. They did it. And no sooner did they get those nets on the other side of the water than what happened? The Bible very clearly tells you 153 large fish. And the nets did not break. Miracle alert. John says, it's the Lord. Peter says, you think? And off came the robe and into the water he went. Swam to shore and there was Jesus with breakfast. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know how the creator and sustainer of the universe makes breakfast? <laughs> breakfast. Those were probably fish that had never touched water. I believe they probably tasted like crab or lobster. <laughs> breakfast is ready. Finally, the other disciples show up, and there they are around the fire, and, 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 and the Lord looks at Peter and says, Hey, Peter. And folks, listen carefully. This is what it says in the Greek. Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, I like you. He uses phileo, not agape. Second time, the Lord says, Peter, do you love me? Agape. Peter says, Lord, I like you. Phileo. Third time, the Lord says, Peter, do you phileo? Do you like me? Peter says, Lord, you know I do. And the Lord says this, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. You are now officially a preacher. Feed my sheep. Oh, and by the way, Peter, you're not going to die a natural death. Do you remember that? You're not. You're going to die a martyr's death. You know what Peter's reaction was? What about John? The Lord says, none of your business. You feed my sheep. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what he's referring to in verse 14. He's saying, listen, I know I'm about to die a martyr's death. He doesn't say, oh, please pray for me. I'm really upset. No, no, he's not afraid of death. He's not afraid of going home. No Christian right with God is. But Peter says, after I'm gone, after I'm gone, would you please keep reminding my people of these seven melodies? 
Ladies and gentlemen, there's no doubt in my mind that if Peter were your preacher tonight instead of me, this is what he'd be giving you. Add to your faith virtue and knowledge and, and temperance and patience and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. Come on, do this, do this. Peter would do that. But watch in verse 15, he repeats himself. Verse 15. So he says, moreover, may I repeat, I will endeavor, this is my ministry goal, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my deceased death to have, what folks, these things always in remembrance. So all that I've taken literally 25 minutes to say this. Are you getting the idea, people, that the seven melodies are incredibly significant? If your answer to that is yes, amen, good for you, you got it. They are incredibly important, and may I repeat, that those seven melodies are always the direction the Bible is going to take you. It is God's will for every one of you to be fruitful, and you're not going to be fruitful, you're not going to be useful, until you have and overflow these seven melodies. So with that in mind, let's go back to verse 5. Verse 5, and let's get into this, shall we? Remember in verse 5 he says, And beside this, in other words, because you are gifted, you have everything you need to do this successfully in your life. And beside this, giving all eagerness, enthusiasm, add, which means to course together to your faith, virtue. And do you remember what virtue meant? Virtue means to make up your mind, I'm going to do right. I'm going to be strong. As for me and my house, I am going to serve the Lord, folks. It is a resolve. Oh, I love that word. It is you resolving that no matter what's politically correct, no matter what anybody else is doing, I'm going to stay in my foxhole. I'm making up my mind. I'm going to do right. Then and only then are you ready to go to the manual and find out what is right. Now, with that in mind, Judson, would you come here, please? Judson, I would like you to stand on that first step right there. Would you right where I'm pointing? Okay. And uh, folks, here's what's going to happen. From now on, for the rest of this message, tomorrow night and Wednesday night, every time Mike Schrock comes over to this area by the piano, I want this area right here to represent you and me before we were saved. Before we were saved. Now, maybe some of you are still like this tonight. Our prayer is for you. But before you were saved, before you asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior, the Bible says you had four really bad conditions. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says that you were blind, you were ignorant, you were aliens of God, and your understanding was darkened. I just quoted verse 17 of Ephesians 4. Anybody unsaved, folks, I'm talking about all of America except for you. They are ignorant, they are blind, their understanding is darkened, and they're aliens. Now, I would recommend that when you go on vacation and you knock on somebody's door and they're brave enough to answer it and they're friendly with you and you have the opportunity to start presenting the gospel, I would recommend you not use that approach. Ma'am, sir, I just want you to know that you're ignorant of God, you're blind, your understanding is darkened, and you're an alien of heaven. Probably not the best approach. However, if you did, you'd be right. You'd be right. I am fascinated by that idea of being blind. Being blind. Anybody unsaved is blind. Can I give you an example of that? Years ago, I was living in Massachusetts. I was a big Boston Celtics fan. 
And one night I was watching on Nesson, which stands for New England Sports Network. I was watching a Boston Celtics game. During halftime, they brought two young couples down to one foul line and the other couple down to another foul line. And the golden voice announcer of the Fleet Center said, Ladies and gentlemen, these two couples are going to compete for $25,000. Whichever couple scores a basket first with a one-minute time limit will win the money. The shooting will be done by the man. His girlfriend will be his rebounder. He will be blindfolded. She will be his rebounder, and she can yell instructions to him, but she may not touch him. Well, friends, one referee with a basketball went to that foul line. The other referee went to that foul line. And before they blew the whistle, would you please put yourself in their sneakers? There they are in front of 18,000 fans. The Fleet Center's always sold out. There are another at least one million watching on TV. Do you think they might be a little bit pumped, a little bit nervous? Absolutely. You get nervous in front of eight, let alone 18,000. There, and you know, you know what she's thinking, <laughs> 25,000, that'd be by one of these. Um, he's thinking 25,000, that'd buy a nice car, you know, the, the conflicting interests. But, but anyway, you got to know they're pumped. They're really excited. The, the, the adrenaline is pumping. The camera, did, they blew a whistle. The camera went down to this couple. This guy, he, he, the referee had spun him around. He's blindfolded. He took that basketball. He shot the basket, folks. It went into the stands. His girlfriend went running after it. She grabbed it. She brought it back to her, her boyfriend and said something sophisticated like, That was too hard to kick on that guard to the right. Now hurry up and shoot it, idiot. He shot it again. It went about halfway to the rim. She ran. She grabbed it. She came back. She said something about, That is too soft. Harder. Hurry up. He shot again. Folks, after one minute, after one minute, not one of those couples came close to hitting the backboard. But the cameras panned the audience where you were sitting out here and you saw this over and again. People wiping tears out of their eyes. They'd been laughing so hard. I'm on my living room couch. It was so incredibly funny. And let me tell you why it was so funny. They were so desperate. They were trying so hard. They wanted that money so badly. And they looked absolutely ridiculous. What a great skit. What a great skit. But folks, what a picture of this world you live in. I learned from Wall Street Journal that you and I as Americans see on average 3,000 commercials a day. It might be on a billboard. It might be on a website. It might be on somebody's sweatshirt. But you see on average 3,000 commercials a day as an American. I also learned from Time Magazine that the number one pursuit of us Americans is we just want to be happy. And so here we are all around you, people blind spiritually, They just want to be happy, and they're shooting at the basket thinking, if I could just get the right income, if I could just get the right relationship, if I could just get the right car, if I could just get the right popularity, if I could just get the right house, if I could just get the right clothes, I'll be happy. And God looks down, he says, in Psalms and Proverbs and laughs. Look at them. Look at them. They're a skit. I'm trying to remove their blindfold. I gave them my word but they will not obey it. They will not learn it. That was you, my friend. That was me. And somehow the Spirit of God got into your heart and got you to see the truth and you were, had that blindfold removed and you looked and you saw, wait a minute, I'm a sinner. 
I deserve hell. He died on the cross to rescue me from that penalty. Yes, please. Yes, please. Yes, please. And you got saved. Could I get an amen? You got saved. And friends, here's what Peter's telling you. Now that you're saved, now that you've had the blindfold removed, now you can see from that moment on in every area of your life, your music, your entertainment, your relationships, your thought life, where you go, every, every area of your life, you're to add to your faith. And folks, when this hand touches that massive chest, I would like you to say with your massive voices, virtue. Okay, you ready? Shall we try it? So here I am. I'm you. Boop, I get saved from that moment on in every area of my life. I'm to add to my faith. Very good, church. Very, very good. Okay? Now, remember what he means? This is simply you making up your mind. I now belong to Christ. I am now his. I'm a slave of the Savior instead of a slave for the devil. There is no middle ground. And I want to please him. I'm all about the word of God. I'm all about Jesus Christ. And folks, then and only then, are you ready for melody number two? You make up your mind, understand they are sequential. There's a reason that the Holy Spirit put them in this order. So, Justin, who should I get for melody number two? No, not a girl. Chandler, get up here. Taylor? Chandler. Chandler. Oh, good, Chandler. Come up here, please. Yeah. Come, Chandler, hurry. Hurry, Chandler. Hurry. Hurry. Good old Chandler. Chandler, thank you for volunteering. <laughs> All right, I want Chandler to represent knowledge. Chandler's going to represent knowledge, and these guys will be here tomorrow night and Wednesday night, and feel free to dress up a little bit if you want. But, uh, um, but I would like Chandler, I like Chandler to represent knowledge. Now, friends, you make up your mind I'm going to do right. Then and only then are you ready to go to the manual. This guy right here is representing what you know about doctrine, what you know about the Bible, what you know about what it says in your life, and it also includes applying it. So we've got the Word of God here. Well, friends, I don't know how well you know the Bible. Perhaps some of you know it very well, and you'll oh, wholeheartedly agree with this. But there's information in there. When you read the Bible, there's information that your flesh is going to go, No! No! I like those cuss words. I like that rock and roll. I like those movies. I like those Internet sites. I like this fornicating lifestyle that I'm in. But friends, do you understand? Your flesh. I'm about to ruin your night. But what I'm looking at and what you're looking at is not the real you. I'm looking at flesh. Your flesh, people, the Bible teaches you this over and over and over again. Your flesh will never get saved. Your flesh is a curse. Even the Apostle Paul said, who will deliver me from this body of death? It is a curse. I am not looking at the real you. The real you is way down deep inside, but what I want you to understand about this flesh, oh, we give it so much care and tender care, and we're we're so, and and I, I realize, you know, if the bar needs painting, you paint it. I understand that. But, 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 but you got to understand, friends, that your flesh, your flesh will always fight you spiritually. Your flesh will always fight you spiritually. So Paul said this, be a murderer. Be a murderer. 
People, that's exactly what he's saying when he says, crucify the flesh. Your flesh will always fight you spiritually. You start reading the manual, and there's going to be stuff in there that your flesh is going to go, no, no. And most of Christianity in America says, oh, okay, I give up. No, you fight the flesh. And when you fight the flesh, you are going to grow spiritually. And let me tell you, people, what your attitude tonight ought to be, and I don't care who you are, whether you're a deacon, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, a choir member, a college grad, a high school grad, a junior high grad, doesn't matter. When it comes to this guy right here, not one of you are there yet. Your preacher tonight is not there yet. Your attitude ought to be just like the Apostle Paul who said this in a sports metaphor. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul said when it came to the Word of God, Philippians, not as I had already attained, either were already perfect. Then the very next verse in that metaphor, he says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. What he is saying twice, people, is this. When it comes to knowledge, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to doctrine, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. When it comes to that athletic event called Christianity, I'm not as good as I'm going to be. I want to get better. And friends, when he wrote that, that is Philippians. Philippians is a prison epistle. Paul is at the end of his life. He's in his 60s, and he's still hungry. Did you hear that, saints? In his 60s, he's still hungry. Your attitude tonight, my friend, if God's going to use you, if you're going to be fruitful, if you're going to get rid of scurvy, your attitude when it comes to the Bible is, I'm not there yet. I'm still studying it. I'm still reading it. I'm still taking courses. I'm still taking notes on, on the messages. I'm listening to preaching even during the week. I can't get enough Bible. Just cannot get enough of it. Oh, folks, isn't it hard to find a Christian like that? It sure is. But I hope I'm looking at a whole gob of them. But you understand that you're the one, people. You're the one who decides. It's you that decides how much time you spend in the Bible. It's you that decides right here that how the Bible is going to work in your life. So, are you ready? Clear your voices. Let's do it, all right? You ready? You ready to talk to me? So here we go. I'm you. I get saved. Boop! I'm now saved. I'm no longer blind. I'm no longer ignorant. I know the truth. I, my understanding's no longer darkened. I've got enlightenment, Ephesians 1 says. I got, from, I got enlightenment from on high. Woohoo! I win. From that moment on, in every area of my life, I'm to add to my faith. Virtue. Make up your mind. You add to virtue? No. Stay hungry. Stay hungry. All right. All right, now, let's add one more. I'll just take about two or three minutes on it because I want you to come back tomorrow night so I don't want to abuse the time, okay? But let's add one more. Who should I get? Josiah? Okay, Josiah. <laughs> Josiah, all right, Josiah. Josiah, Josiah, thank you, Josiah, for volunteering. I like Josiah. <laughs> Josiah really got dressed up tonight. And, uh, and, uh, I'll thank him to wear that T-shirt inside out. But uh, um, I would like Josiah to represent my least favorite melody. My least favorite. And by the way, it'll be yours too. It's called temperance. Your Bible calls it temperance. Now, let me introduce temperance by doing a little skit for you. Could I please? Let's pretend you don't know me. And I'm a cute little blonde. 17, 18 years old. I'm a cute little blonde, and, and cute little blondes love to show up for church late. And I show up for church late, and 
maybe I'm the pastor's daughter. And I, uh, and I, I come in the door, and then I, come, I come prancing in. You know, I got my little dress on and high heels and just had my nails done. And I'm looking for a nice place to sit. And I want to sit down front where everybody can see me. You know, that's so, you know, pastor. Um, so I, I, I come in here to sit down. And as I'm, as I'm getting ready to sit down, because there's an open spot here, somehow my little high heel gets kind of caught in the carpeting. And I kind of drip and kind of do a face plant. I, I kind of, I'm kind of shook up a little bit, and I, I get, and I happen to look down, and I broke a nail. I broke a nail, and I, I just, I just had them done yesterday. I broke a nail. I, I broke a nail, and I stand up and I march out of church. I'm so upset with tears. I'm your daughter. We are in the car going home from church. What in the world would you say to me? Talk to me. What would you say to me? So glad what? So glad I have sons. You know what I would say to her? Obviously, I'm not going to get much help here. Uh, You know what I would say to her if she were my daughter? I'd say, honey, you need to get a grip. That is just absolutely uncalled for. You need to get a grip. Ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what God is telling you tonight. You need to get a grip. What are you getting a grip on? Your flesh. Your flesh. Your schedule. The stuff you let in your life. We kind of have a fancy word for this guy right here. We call it discipline. And may I remind you in closing tonight that Paul told a young man in the ministry, Timothy, you can't be godly without discipline. We will start right there tomorrow night. Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes? Gentlemen, you can go sit down. Thank you. (coughs) Heavenly Father, I personally believe, Lord, that next to Ephesians chapter 4, this is one of the most practical passages in the entire Bible, written by a man who loves the church. And after he was gone, he left behind some preaching instructions for us to zero in on, to focus on. Lord, as he just masterfully, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, summarized Christianity. And God, I realize I'm preaching tonight and praying right now in front of people that are coming from all levels of Christianity. Lord, some are growing more than others. Some are hungry for the word more than others. But God, I do pray that they would come clean with you even tonight. Lord, there's no doubt that there are many Christians in here who have become useless. Oh, Lord, they're still saved. They're still going to heaven. The Holy Spirit still resides in their hearts. But, Lord, they've gotten lazy. They've gotten sick. They've let scurvy come in. And, God, I pray that you would take these messages and use them to stir up your people. Lord, you want them to make up their mind, I'm going to do right. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Lord, you want them to just absolutely be in lust with your word, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. Lord, I pray that these seven melodies, as we learn them together over the next few nights, will have a profound effect on every life.